Humans are storytellers. During our species time on Earth, countless myths have been born, endless legends spun. Folk tales, fables, and fairy tales are among the most enduring examples of our capacity for storytelling. In the distant future, when humanity has established itself firmly as an interplanetary species, what tales might have emerged along the way? What stories might Martian settlers tell each other during long, cold nights on the Red Planet? What myths might arise as humans spread across the solar system and eventually reach for the stars? This is Space Age Folk Tales. The history of the Space Age is bursting with tales of heroism and adventure. From Neil Armstrong's first step on the moon, to the survival of the first scrappy colonies on Mars, to the daring pilots who tugged asteroids into orbit around Earth for easier mining, the centuries in which humanity spread across the solar system are often romanticized as a golden age of scientific progress and enlightenment an era of explosive expansion during which humanity truly began to realize its potential. While these sentiments are true in many respects, not everyone got to go along for the ride. Even as spaceships with crews traveled to the very edge of the solar system and cities thrived on hostile worlds, Earth itself increasingly became a place of darkness. Dwindling resources pushed nations to war. Pollution choked the skies as environmental devastation ran rampant across humanity's homeworld. Things only got worse after the Martian colonies declared independence. Demagogues rose and democracies faltered. Amidst the chaos, humanity's off-world missions and colonies stood out as shining beacons of inspiration to some of those trapped on Earth. They were evidence that humanity, as a species, could accomplish great things. That human ingenuity could do more than create weapons of war. Some of the Earthbound didn't care much about what was going on above the sky. But to many of those that did, the Martian colonies and Venusian cloud cities and Neptunian outposts represented something they desperately wished they could have. A way to rise above the struggles of Earth and start anew somewhere else. Everyone knew those other planets were far from paradisiacal, but the idea of escaping Earth for a new world, even with all the struggles and risks it entailed, was enticing enough to make many people sign up as colonists or explorers. Space travel became more and more accessible as the decades wore on, with millions of people living and working in space but there were always those too poor or unqualified to make it up there, even when they wanted to. The story we are exploring today emerged on Earth in 2389, told by one Jeltz Livingston to a group of friends. Livingston wrote it down two years later, and it spread like wildfire among the Earthbound. It deals with one of the most popular themes found in space-age folklore. UFOs and Alien Abduction 
The story has never been taken seriously outside true believer circles, but it is a clear expression of Livingston's desire to escape Earth and see the universe. Like many of the Earthbound, he longed to touch the stars, and in the absence of a way to truly fulfill that longing, it appears that he turned to storytelling. This is A Voyage of Wonders, written by Jiltz Livingston. I must admit that I have always had a fascination with the stars, and with the planets that circle overhead. I consider myself privileged to be alive during this time of great exploration, when the American Union has planted its flag on the moons of the outermost planets, and thriving colonies cover the face of a multitude of celestial bodies. Our forefathers would not have believed it possible that entire cities could be built on worlds as harsh as those we share our solar system with. And yet, we live in an era where it is taken for granted. I have always longed for the opportunity to visit one of those cities on another world, but I have never escaped the slums so long as I've been alive, and there are a million volunteers that the great American Union would accept for a mission before me. I now, however, find that I have been the undeserving and barely believing recipient of an experience that I would contend is the equal of a thousand lifetimes spent on Mars. I swear on my life that this tale is true, and that in these pages I tell no lie, except if omission were asked. I understand that many will be skeptical, and I find no fault with anyone who disbelieves me after reading this tale. I only ask that. If you have made it this far into my story, you continue reading to the end before you make up your mind about whether I am a liar, or, as I assert, the most fortunate man in all the universe. It was on a late summer's evening that I was returning from a walk in Hillside Park, a protected five-acre area of forest quite a few miles away from my home. I consider myself quite fit, and although it takes some time and effort to even reach the park from my house, I find the strain to be worth it for some time in nature. In any case, I had just left the park and begun to make my way home, ducking down a side street and following a shortcut route. There were not many people around, and I remember thinking that was strange. Whether or not that fact is related to the events I experienced next, I cannot say. I thought I saw a flash of something above me, so I looked up. In the air, just above the walls of the buildings around me, was a small saucer nearly as gray as the sky, but with a color that was ever so slightly darker. It had a blue light in its center, and appeared totally smooth. I could not see its sides, as it appeared to be directly above me. As I stared at it in amazement and disbelief, the blue light flashed, and suddenly I was in a plain gray room without corners, surrounded by... People, or so it seemed at first. Something about them was not quite right, and at first glance, I could not identify the features that made them seem so strange to me. But as I looked around in bewilderment and fear, I began to realize that they appeared more like some other creature's imperfect concept of what a human should look like than like actual living people. I was reminded of old documentaries I have seen, in which scientists created robotic versions of animals in order to observe wildlife up close without disturbing them. The 
people surrounding me appeared truly organic to my eyes, not robotic, but they had pupils that were much too large, fingers that were much too long, skin that was too glossy, torsos that were out of proportion with the rest of their bodies, mouths with smiles that stretched too wide. Most of all, their countenances and the way they carried themselves were inexpressibly unnerving. It truly appeared to me, throughout my whole encounter, as though they were simply trying their best to act the way they thought a human ought to act. Where am I? Who are you? What's going on? I demanded as I tried to back away, only to find that more of those strange people were standing behind me. They all gazed at me with tilted heads, their huge, nearly black eyes boring into me, their two large smiles making my skin crawl. Please relax, said one of the beans, a tall, pale man with a face I can only describe as incredibly generic, as though a thousand human faces had been averaged out and the result pasted onto his head. We are not here to harm you. You have been randomly selected from among your peers to participate in a psychological experiment. By whom? I asked, still frightened. What experiment? All you need to know is that we come from a planet far away and have traveled here to study your people in secret, said the man. We cannot safely reveal our system of origin or show ourselves to you, so we have chosen to communicate with you via these constructs. You may call me Joseph. Constructs? I asked. You can't safely reveal yourselves? What are you talking about? Are these robots? Not robots, but not alive either, said Joseph. I'm afraid it would take a substantial amount of time to explain to you. So you're aliens hiding behind these human-looking things, and you're, what, scared to show your real faces to me? I asked. Why? Do you think I might travel to your home system and cause trouble? I assure you that neither I nor my people are capable of that. We don't have the technology. Joseph's caricature of a smile grew, somehow, a little wider. It's not you we're worried about, he said. I waited for him to elaborate, but he moved swiftly along to his next point. This psychological experiment, Joseph said, is quite simple. We are studying the changes that occur in human brains when they are exposed to sights their primitive minds were not meant to handle. No offense. The births and deaths of stars and planets. Cosmic wonders. Much of it is far beyond anything your brains were ever supposed to encounter. It is quite harmless for you to view these things, but it has psychological effects we are attempting to investigate. So, Mr. Livingston, would you be interested in taking a short tour of some of the universe's greatest wonders? I tell you, I could not have been more shocked had the ghost of Isaac Collier appeared before me at that very moment. Here I found myself in a scenario from a movie or surround novel, but it was quite unlike anything I had ever witnessed in those media, and it was really playing out before me. 
Would anyone, given such an opportunity, have refused it? A chance to see things that exist beyond natural human comprehension? To travel further than even the farthest flung human colonists have traveled? A chance to explore the universe aboard what appeared to be a spaceship belonging to some interstellar species? I might have thought I was dreaming had the experience not been so vivid and plainly real. I'm sure many believe I was dreaming even as they read this tale. But I assure you that this was no dream. It could not have been. And what followed proved this fact to me even more. I told the beans that I would gladly serve as their intergalactic tourist and science experiment. I had no real way of knowing whether or not their intentions were truly good, but the things Joseph had spoken of sounded so incredible that I could not bear to ask them to return me to the ground of Earth without first taking a chance at seeing those sights for myself. And I knew that beans who had so easily abducted me would, if they were dangerous, be capable of overpowering me no matter what I decided. Very good, said Joseph. I do not believe you will regret this. I was whisked away through a strange corridor that seemed to grow smaller as I passed through it, for some unknowable reason. Just when my head was nearly touching the ceiling, it ended, and I found myself standing in a room as plain and gray as the one I had just been in, save for one wide, flat wall that appeared completely transparent. Swirling clouds danced before my eyes, surrounded by stars, and I realized with a start that I was gazing out over the gentle blue and green curve of the earth. The moon hung in the inky void above it. Are you ready to begin? asked Joseph from his place beside me. This will not take long. Of course, I said, gazing with awe at the planet below me. It was vast and tiny at the same time, bigger than I could fathom, but somehow small among the darkness of space. Where are we going first? I asked. Can we visit my people's colonies on Mars? I have always wanted to see them in person. I am afraid that lies outside the scope of this experiment, my friend, said Joseph. Fortunately, we will be viewing things even more spectacular than that red planet. A small patch of stars in front of me, in front of the ship, I suppose, began to contort and twist in a spiral pattern, and then suddenly we shot forward. For a few moments, a trillion points of light spun in wild confusion outside the window, and then we emerged into a brilliant blue glow. A great spinning globe the color of the ocean greeted my eyes. Long wisps of something that looked like smoke the same color as the orb itself streamed off it, and I saw that they seemed to be attached to a spinning, pitch-black disk. I realized that I must be looking at an alien star, and as I observed the spectacle before me, I came to understand that the disk was, in some way, draining the massive star of material. We are a million light-years away from your home planet observing a blue giant star in the process of being devoured by a black hole, explained Joseph. For the moment, the window has been tinted to shield your eyes from the overpowering light of the star and from the effects its radiation might have on your body. The ship drew closer to the star, and I spotted a much smaller orb among the wisps of material being torn away from the black hole. That, said Joseph, 
is a tiny rocky planet comparable in size to your system's Mercury. It is one of this planetary system's only survivors, at least so far. All of the stars Jupiter's and Neptune's and Earth's have been vacuumed up by that black hole, which is an intruder from interstellar space. But that little rocky planet remains. He gave me a few more moments to stare in awe at the spectacle of the mighty star being slowly consumed by the black hole, as that little planet danced and dodged through streams of particles. And then the star field began to distort once again, and the ship darted forward. Another brilliant glow filled my field of vision, and I now found myself gazing at another star, this one small and yellow, swaddled in what appeared to be a sheath of semi-translucent gas. Now here we are, on the other end of the spectrum of birth and death, said Joseph. We are witnessing the formation of a star. Just over there, you can see a protoplanet about the size of your system's Saturn, being created from the gas and dust surrounding it. Indeed, I looked and could see a great brown orb spinning through nearby space, passing through clouds of glittering dust and swallowing the material up. The stars distorted once more, and the ship raced forward into a new vista. We were hovering above a mass of swirling clouds turned crimson by the light of a swollen red star in the sky that appeared several times larger than our sun looks from here on Earth. What's this? I asked. We are floating in the atmosphere of a gas giant nearly twice the size of your system's Jupiter, orbiting a red giant star in the final stages of its life, said Joseph. Gravitational disturbances in this system have sent planets careening to and fro, sometimes crashing into each other. At the horizon just below the red star, an enormous dark mass began to rise into view. I became increasingly nervous as it continued to rise, and its full enormity became apparent. It was a dark blue orb that took up half the sky, and as its edge touched the star, the red light began to fade until everything was plunged into an eerie darkness. Somehow, I could still see the orb, and now I could see it clearly enough to make out features on its surface. It was a planet. That was for certain, and it had tumultuous storms all across its surface. It is difficult to express how large it appeared in the sky. I felt as though I could nearly reach out and touch it. That planet, a bit smaller than your Neptune, is about to collide with this one, explained Joseph. It will be a colossal event for this solar system, although nobody is around to see it but us. There was another distortion of space in front of us and in a moment we had disappeared from the enormous gas giant and were sitting in space. Before my eyes, I could see the full globe of the gas giant, which looked nearly as angry and red as its parent star. The blue planet was much smaller than it, but as I watched, it touched down on the larger planet's surface, and for a brief moment, a blinding light erupted. As it faded, I saw the blue planet swallowed up by the red one, Enormous plumes of gas billowing from the larger planet as the two giants collided. The large red planet had survived, but half of the sphere now seemed to be blowing off into space. After a few moments of watching the cloud of debris expand and glitter red in the starlight, we warped once more. This is our final visit on this little tour, said Joseph. I present you with the machinations of an advanced civilization in a star system several galaxies away. 
I have already obtained their permission to show you a glimpse of their activities, as they believe they will not be identifiable based solely on what you see here. If I had found the other sites astonishing, what I witnessed now bordered on the truly incomprehensible. I cannot even fully recall or describe the bustling scene I saw before me, nor the sheer scale of it. I saw a yellow star like our sun floating in space, and before it was something like a vast silver web that seemed to move and breathe almost like a living organism. A rocky planet seemed to be caught in the web, and I saw that it was half covered in tendrils of silver like those of the web. A trillion other tiny objects seemed to be moving around in front of the web, but they were too distant for me to make out their features. What are they doing? I whispered in awe. That I cannot say, replied Joseph. Do you know? I asked. I do, said Joseph, but they instructed me not to provide you with any details. I turned to him, tearing my eyes away from the window for what must have been the first time during this voyage, and forcing myself not to recoil anew from the wrongness of his still-grinning face. They're afraid, too? I asked. Of the same thing you're afraid of? What does a species capable of capturing a planet need to fear? What do you, with a ship that effortlessly leaps from galaxy to galaxy in seconds, need to fear? Joseph hesitated for a moment. His smiling expression was unchanged, but I saw his eyes flicker to one of the other beings standing by the door for a split second. I cannot say much without putting you and your people in danger as well, he said. A chill ran down my spine. So it's really not us you're worried about. Not humans. A nearly imperceptible look of something resembling amusement crossed Joseph's face, and then vanished so quickly that I wondered if I had imagined it entirely. No, said Joseph. There is... Something else monitoring Earth. They are not a danger to you at present, but you should not seek out more knowledge about them. That is truly all I can say on the matter. He nodded to the window, and I sensed that I would not be able to get any more information out of him, despite my burning curiosity at the subject. Take one last look, said Joseph. I turned and gazed out at the brightness of the star, Contrasted against the infinity of space, surrounded by that glimmering silver web. I watched the rocky planet sway in its place, and I wondered again what could make the beings who had done this fear for their safety. The silver web seemed to contort into a spiral, and then we shot forward, and we were once again hovering over the blue and green sphere of Earth. Thank you for your participation, said Joseph. I did not know what happened then, but the very next moment, I found myself standing outside my house. I suppose it was rather courteous of the beans to drop me off there, rather than simply returning me to the spot from which they had taken me. I made my way inside, still in a state of excitement and disbelief over what I had just experienced, and sat down. I sat there for a while, just thinking about all I had witnessed and how privileged I was to have been as Joseph claimed, randomly selected for the honor of seeing such incredible events that no human had ever been meant to see. My mind also turned to the mysterious threat Joseph had hinted at. The force that was monitoring Earth, 
the thing that forced Joseph and his people to maintain anonymity, and a level of secrecy when dealing with humanity. The thought that it may have simply been part of the experiment crossed my mind, and perhaps that was the case. Perhaps it was merely a lie told to me in order to gauge my reaction, all just part of the Bean's psychological experiment. Although Joseph had seemed serious when speaking of the threat, it was impossible to discern those Bean's true thoughts. I suppose I will always be left to wonder what the truth really is. That, then, is my story. I was granted an encounter with something unimaginable, and an experience that took me across millions of light years, to the farthest corners of the universe, where I saw what I imagined must be some of the most beautiful and terrifying events in all of creation. Whether or not my story is believed by many, I have shared it and I can do no more than that. I took no evidence from the ship, and I doubt the beans would have allowed me to do so even if I had considered it. But I swear to you that these events occurred, and that they were as real as a walk in Hillside Park, or a commute to work, or a trip to the flat market. I hope this story helps to express the beauty and majesty of the universe, and the mystery as well. There are an infinity of worlds we have yet to explore, trillions of systems we have not reached, and as I now know for a fact, other spacefaring civilizations we have not met. Perhaps one day, mankind will have explored more of that infinity than we now think possible. For now, we continue to reach and wonder. Thank you for listening to this episode of Space Age Folk Tales. If you enjoyed it, please leave a rating and a review. Be sure to check out our social media accounts, which are linked in the description. Also be sure to check the description to see where I got the sound effects and music I used in this episode. Thanks again. <laughs>